What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Rupert Murdoch and Alternative Facts. Right. You can already guess where I'm coming down on this one. There are no such things as alternative facts. There are alternative perspectives, of course, but facts are facts, despite whatever spin Kellyanne Conway tried to deploy during the Trump years. We can disagree about how to interpret facts, but there they remain, stubborn things. When stubborn people collide with stubborn things, when the like of Rupert Murdoch assembles a media empire largely designed to embrace and disseminate disinformation, you have the makings of a Crash Course episode. Murdoch, the 92-year-old progenitor of the Fox News miasma, recently retired from his perch atop Fox Corp and News Corp. Fox owns various Fox media and broadcasting properties. News Corp holds sway over more straight arrow enterprises like the Wall Street Journal and HarperCollins, as well as a handful of brass knuckle tabloids that have cut swaths through New York, London, and Sydney. But Fox is likely to define Murdoch's legacy, a legacy some of his former executives now reject. Three of them jointly noted in a recent public statement, and I quote, we never envisioned and would not knowingly have enabled the disinformation machine that, in our opinion, Fox has become. For his part, Murdoch seems untroubled. Bury your mistakes, he likes to say. Joining me today is Molly Jong-Fast, a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, a ubiquitous TV commentator, and the host of the Fast Politics podcast. Molly is shrewd, candid, and unspinnable. We're going to talk about Murdoch, the media, and the epic disinformation cyclone surrounding us. Howdy, Molly. Hi, how are you? I'm glad to have you on. Well, I'm glad to join you. So the departure point for talking about Rupert Murdoch's career and his legacy, I have a hard time believing that a noted hard worker and control freak like Rupert Murdoch, who assembled this giant empire of media assets from scratch with a little help, you know, from an Australian paper he inherited from his father, will just let go of the reins and let young Lachlan run the show. But maybe that's the case. We'll talk about that. But I wanted to know just first and foremost, what is Rupert Murdoch stepping down from his perch symbolize to you? How do you think about that? I mean, I think it's a fake thing. I, again, this is the question here. When you have people who are bad faith actors like the Murdochs and Donald Trump and, you know, people where again and again, they have told you who they are. I want to believe them. So I put very little stake in what Rupert Murdoch says publicly and much more stake in whatever it is that he does. And in this case, Look, this sort of Death Star, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, I think Fox News is the most destructive of the trio, but Fox News has begot many other conservative media, you know, 
the right side broadcasting. They've got what America News, right? Streamers, Newsmax. Newsmax. So they are no longer just one cancer. There is a metastasis, right, in our American media ecosystem. So I would say that I don't put much stake in what Rupert says or what Lachlan well, let's says. Let's start with Rupert, though. Let's start right. with Rupert. Why do you think Rupert's being disingenuous? I mean, I have no reason to think one way or the I mean, here's what I would say. I think life imitates art and he will probably stay controlling the company until he dies, as he did on the HBO show Succession, which I know is not actually a biopic, but more and more it does seem like. You know, Rupert's mother, I think she lived till she was at least 120, (laughs) but that might be too high. It's definitely well north of 100. So he could, you know, if the genes are a tell, Rupert could be with us, you know, for 20 more years. I mean, I think what's relevant about Rupert Murdoch stepping down is that there is the acknowledgement here. There's the tacit acknowledgement that someday he will die. And when he does die. Do you think that's really the tacit acknowledgement? He does because he thought, well, I'm just going to send a signal out to the world that I recognize my own mortality. Mortality at 92. I mean, you know, this is not some like brave, you know, shot across the bow here. I mean, he's in, in his 90s. But I would say this. I think that what is relevant about this is that eventually the kids are going to have a fight. Because there are four kids, four voting kids, and only one of them is an actual fascist. Or, you know, we're not supposed to say fascist. Is fascist adjacent? Or is is fascist friendly? F.A. Yeah. F.A. Is fascist friendly. So there's going to be a big fight. And it'll be that, I think, is what is is interesting. Just so our listeners know, the, the Murdochs exercise control over their media empire through a trust. And the kiddies each have an equal stake. Lachlan yes. is running the show has one stake, but his siblings... Elizabeth. And James. And there's one other one who's older. Yeah, they all have their own say, and they appear to be of a different political persuasion than Lachlan. Right. So people anticipate a food fight. And then there are the younger kids who don't have voting stakes, but who do have financial stakes. So, I mean, eventually when he dies, there will be a real reckoning for the station. But again, the thing about Fox, which I think is important to realize and was not true in 1996 when it started, is that the horse has already left the barn, right? Like Pandora is out of the box, right? If Fox ends tomorrow, there's still right side broadcasting. There's still Newsmax. There is such little pushback to some of these Fact people. Checking. Fact checking. Yeah. And pushback when they lie that they can get away with it. We'll talk more about the ecosystem that Murdoch has built But it's worth pausing for a moment to think about how we got here, which is he road tested all of this overseas. Yeah. First in Australia and then on Fleet Street. And then he Mm -hmm. came to America and owned a succession of papers that he went to school on. Originally, The Village Voice. He had New York Magazine at one point. He ended up with The New York Post. Then he famously got The Wall Street Journal over a period of decades. But Fox was the sort of realization of some of the lessons he learned overseas, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think, look, propaganda works, right? And what we saw with the Dominion case, which I think is really an important moment in American media studies, right, is here... But I want to wait. I want to wait to get to the Dominion case. I just want to talk a little bit for a minute about 
the phenomenon of Fox itself long before Dominion came along. Right. You know, he built this network under Roger Ailes that had a combination of a news arm and commentators, but the real mojo for the network were its commentators. They trafficked mm-hmm. in conspiracy theories, Seth Rich, birtherism, you know, the January 6th uprising, yeah. alternative viewpoints about what that meant over a period of decades. Why do you think that got traction? Why do I think it got traction? I think, look, tabloids have a long and storied history in America and Great Britain. And people like to read trash. I mean, that is like, I feel like that is one of our basest instincts. And for a long time, politicians in America at least had a sort of code, an honor code, right? So, you know, you would have a decorum, right? There'd be Senate decorum. And you still have, it's interesting, you still have a disconnect between the Senate and the House, right? The House is significantly, people are much sleazier to each other in the House than they are in the Senate, right? And the Senate, because you kind of, it's a little bit more clubby, which can also be problematic sometimes. But I think people liked that there was this kind of tabloidiness of it. And I Free think, for all. Right. And I also think that like, One of the reasons why this propaganda has really grown is because there are really racist people in this country who see that they demographically can't beat it, right? They can't win, right? They are not having babies fast enough to keep this country white. And the racism, the underlying, I'm not even going to say it's anxiety because I don't think you should give them the benefit of the doubt. The racism, the sort of American racism, which has, I think, long been an undercurrent in life in America. For centuries. Yeah. Really got all flared up with this when they started to understand this demographic change. And then also when they started to feel that they could not keep up the standards of living that their parents had. I mean, I, you well, know, but, but I mean, that, but that that's anxiety as opposed to racism. You know, the idea that you can't keep up your living standards. Right. I, I'm not denying that they're obviously racism and sense some of this as well. Right. But it is informed by a number of factors. And I do think economic anxiety is one of them. Right. But I also think the deep undercurrent, right? You don't get to Obama's birth certificate unless you're racist, right? You don't, because otherwise that's not insecurity about your job. That's the belief that this man can't possibly be one of us because he's black. And I think that birtherism and Obama is a signal moment. Because yeah. it, it involves so many things. Obama was presiding over an administration that was dealing with the fallout of a financial crisis right. and people feeling economically insecure. He was black in a nation in which, you know, as you noted, the demographics were working against white people. And he was being pilloried in a media ecosystem that could make conspiracy theories go viral in a way they hadn't before. And I think one of the things to think about with Fox and its evolution is they put their finger on sort of this issue of discontent when Roger Ailes first started, the idea that there was this silent majority that wasn't being heard from on the major networks. And they sort of took baby steps when you look back into it now, you know, sort of soft conspiracy theories. The institutions are against you, but they weren't wholesale trafficking initially in propaganda, racism, and disinformation. And with each passing decade, it became more and more severe. And I do think of the birtherism moment as when the floodgates began to open and led right into the shoes of Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. And Trump was part of it, right? 
this is like the Tea Party. You know, the Tea Party is this sort of rage towards institutions for not delivering what you want. And then you've got from there birtherism and the beginning of Donald Trump. I mean, hell hath no fury like a white man told he might have to be the same as everyone else. You know, Murdoch is clearly a newsman in the old-fashioned sense of it. He's liked newsrooms. He's liked reporters. He's owned properties that do do, quote-unquote, straight news reporting. But he also knows what he's unleashed on the other side of that ledger, which is, again, propaganda, disinformation, playing to people's worst emotions. I think I know the answer to this one, but I always like hearing other people's thoughts on it. Why do you think he likes to luxuriate in the cesspool while also funding old-fashioned news gathering? So I actually think that there was a moment, or at least two moments that I can think of, where Murdoch tried to pump the brakes on Fox, and it was too late. And so instead of stopping the propaganda, they'd lost market share. I think at some point he realized that he was no longer driving the bus off the cliff, that the bus was going on autopilot off the cliff. Now, I still don't think he gets any credit for that, but I do think he's savvy enough to know that at this point, the monster, he has no control anymore. So what are the two moments? I think the moment is first when Trump starts to get the nomination Sometime between 2015 and 2016, he realizes that this guy's going to be the nominee. He doesn't want it. And there's nothing he can do. Right. And then he's going to win. And then after January 6th, they all said, like, we're going to stop doing this. And they couldn't because they saw their numbers go down. I mean, couldn't is not really the right word. And they didn't. But I think that's the other moment. And so you're saying that he luxuriated in the cesspool because he had created an unstoppable machine, not because... He liked rubbing it all over his arms and legs. I think he wants money. I think all he cares about is money. And I think that this was the winning formula. And by the time that door was open, he just was like, you know, look, this is an incredibly competitive business. And I think this guy cares more about winning than about like American democracy. I don't think Rupert Murdoch wakes up in the morning and is like, oh, I might be ruining American democracy. I think he's like, the numbers are good. The numbers are bad. And famously, he's used his media holdings to flex. It gives him enormous sway in the business world. It gives him enormous sway in the political world. You want to win. You don't get to be a billionaire like that unless you just don't. Can I curse? No, I can't curse. You don't care about anything but winning. And, you know, famously, he even had editors who went around wiretapping people, whether the extent to which Rupert knew about that or didn't was debated in a courtroom. But he did establish a culture, a very brass knuckled approach to digging into people's business and sort of threatening enemies, perceived or actual. Yeah. No, of course. I mean, the guy is a, you know, we don't spend enough time. I say this as someone who grew up very not wealthy myself, but in a place where I was exposed to a lot of wealthy people, we don't spend enough time talking about the kind of extreme, I want to say, ambition and lack of compassion one must have to make billions of dollars. And so I think it's fair to say that billionaires are not like you and I. 
<laughs> that they well, operate. Although, although I would say I do know compassionate billionaires. Right. I'm and sure. And I do know billionaires who have high standards. And I think that Rupert is an unusual amalgam of low standards, no standards, variable standards, professed high standards, and it would seem a almost complete lack of compassion. Yeah. I mean, right. And he also, in his mind, whatever, we can't know what's in his mind, but the pure ambition does not lend itself to compassion. On that note, I'm going to take a break so we can hear from our sponsor and we'll come right back. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We're back with Molly Jong Fast, Vanity Fair scribe. We were just talking about the arc in a very brief, compressed way of Rupert Murdoch's career. He's handed the reins off to his sons. One thing I just want to touch back on is this idea of, of what changed in the propagandic ecosystem in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the knots, and now. Because I think of, you know, past events where people's jaw dropped, the Willie Horton ad, you know, Mm -hmm. when Michael Dukakis was running for president, Fox calling Florida early for George W. Bush Mm -hmm. when the final vote tally in his race against Al Gore was still being calculated. Those sorts of things at the time were much debated and seen as sort of grotesque manifestations of hardball politics and a kind of unrelenting news environment. But none of it really seems, again, to me to be on the same par with what began when Barack Obama became president. Even the Clintons, I think the Clintons would complain, as Hillary did, you know, vast right-wing conspiracy. I don't even think the Clintons were really exposed to the same kinds of things that Barack Obama was. And so I do see Mm -hmm. Obama, the Obama presidency as this departure point, along with the rise of social media and then the advent of Donald Trump. We talked a little bit earlier about that demarcation, but I want to talk about it a little bit more now in terms of how you think about that. Yeah. I mean, look, social media, I think social media is amazing and good because I came of age, I started writing in the 90s, And there were just so many gatekeepers, right? 
you'd write a piece for Vogue and maybe it would go up and maybe it would get thrown out. You know, you'd pitch the editorial page of the New York Post. You know, there were just gatekeeper after gatekeeper after gatekeeper. And I think that was the way it was. But it would sometimes cause really interesting voices to not be able to break through. And so what I do think is really cool about social media is that you do have people like I was watching this TikTok the other day of this amazing guy who's like a brilliant pundit who there is no way you would ever have heard of this person was it not for TikTok. And I am just delighted by it every day. Unfortunately, you know, I think that I really do look at Congress as this sort of biggest square. Wait, wait. I mean, I think it's putting the cart before the horse to go to Congress. So I agree with you. Well, I mean, go ahead. Things were not regulated properly in the beginning because people didn't understand it. And so, you know, content was kind of given away for free. And then all of a sudden, and again, I blame, I was going to say equal parts Congress and media companies for not being able to see what was coming. And then all of a sudden, we all had to backpedal and say, like, you like our free content now, will you be willing to pay 40 bucks a year for it? On top of that very smart analysis as well is that we have conflicted feelings about the idea of gatekeepers. As you've pointed out, gatekeepers, especially in the, you know, the classic big metro newspaper era, three network era, it was largely white men. It became privileged white men who stood atop those various institutions. And it meant that diverse viewpoints didn't come into the newsroom. It meant that a variety of subjects didn't get covered. And it meant that talented people like you in a previous era wouldn't have gotten a shot. So social broke apart that kind of media monopoly on the intellectual and creative side. And I think that's important and worthy. On the I other just hand, have to pause you for a second because, like, okay. I come from a family of, like, I'm a Nepo, I don't want to say baby, but Nepo middle age. So let's <laughs> not cry for me, Argentina here. Should we tell the audience about your <laughs> yeah, Nepo, I mean, your Nepo elements? You know, yeah. my mom was a writer. My grandfather was a writer. They're both dead. No, my mother is still alive. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. But I'm just saying, I don't know that I, I think I was quite lucky by being born where I was born, but... I do well, but think... you're also being modest now. You also have your own collection of talents right, that but... had to get discovered in a specific way. But I do think that, you know, there are a lot of people for whom the, you know, social media has been incredible. Sorry, go on. So, yes, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But... No, no, it's all good. And I agree with that. I also think there is a positive side to gatekeeping, mm -hmm. which is being a screen for value. Now, if it's just a limited number of people with their hands on the gate, then what you're screening for has very narrow parameters. But... If you also are concerned that propaganda, racism, right. negative aspects of how we communicate or live or act in the world shouldn't just be plastered all over people's eyeballs 24-7 or pumped into their ears 24-7 or put in their papers 24-7, gatekeepers play an important role right. in that. That's true. And that is where social media has completely dropped the ball. And they've lived under this, I think, canard that, well, we're technology platforms. We had Facebook and Twitter and TikTok are just technology platforms, and we are just here to let everything blossom, and we can't play any role in telling people to go the other way. Right. And that has been lost along with the privilege that disappeared. The gatekeeping role has really been, I think, disastrously watered down. Yes, I agree. And I think there's a certain longing people now have for clarity around facts. Where do facts reside? Who assesses them? 
can media be a vehicle for actually finding commonality, having civic discussions? I think it's very hard right now, and I'm, I'm not optimistic about it, but I was wondering if you are optimistic about it. About facts coming well, back? Yeah, into well, yeah, about the ability to have narratives that people can consider dispassionately with an eye towards problem solving as opposed to mudslinging, with an eye towards creating good policy as opposed to saying policy doesn't exist, with an eye towards communicating better because we're a diverse community as opposed to using it to create further divisions. You know, the proactive, positive side of media. I mean, again, media reflects the culture, right? So, you know, we could like sit down and talk about the people on the opinion side at the New York Times or at the Washington Post or at the Wall Street Journal. But I actually think when I think about that question, I think of like, I do a podcast too, where I interview nine guests a week and I, I talk to a lot of politicians and like, I don't think media solves its problems itself, but there are some pretty exciting, you know, I interviewed Congresswoman Summer Lee, who I've interviewed before and she was talking about, you know, she had a statement that Menendez needs to resign. Robert Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, who is facing Found with lots of gold bars, who's facing his second set of indictments, gold bars, Mercedes, half a Ca million dollars cash in envelopes, cash, stuffed yes. in suit pockets. Yeah. But she had said, you know, we're not going to we have no moral high ground if we don't take it. And we cannot be the party that tells Clarence Thomas he has to resign after going to two different Koch brothers summits, if we have a senator who's Googling how much can you sell a gold bar for? Well, that's a high-minded thought, and I don't disagree with you. I think there's a moral thing there that you're airing on the podcast. There's a point being driven towards. But I'm talking about sort of the broader world we live in right now when people are surrounded, particularly via social, by raw propaganda and disinformation and not by strong conversations about a moral way to be a senator or what is and isn't breaking the law. I'm, I'm worried about the broader world that we're in right now. I mean, again, with this disinformation, misinformation, the propaganda stuff, I worry about it. And I would love Congress to do more legislating on it. And they have an opportunity to, which they have continually let the horse out of the barn. But I do worry about it, and I certainly worry about, you know, this continual death of local news. But I also, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is a moral failing on my part, but I'm a little bit hopeful because we have seen, this is not 2016 where Trump won, you know, because we saw online, there was a story about John Podesta and spirit cooking and comet ping pong, right? Like, we've actually seen... In the last bunch of elections, Republicans have underperformed, even when they have said, you know, blatant lies about a candidate. I mean, I'm thinking about like Herschel Walker versus Reverend Warnock, right? Like that was a race where the Republicans were pumping out a lot of disinformation about Reverend Warnock and he still won. So I am a little bit more hopeful about that. There is definitely a fair amount of, as Steve Bannon calls it, flooding the zone with, you know, but I don't know that it, it works quite the same way it used to. And do you think that's because voters and viewers have become more sophisticated because of the barrage of muck, that they've become more able to sort of discern reality from fiction? I don't know. 
But I do know that my husband sent me a picture of a raccoon eating a piece of pizza on top of a garbage can. (laughs) And I immediately wrote back, is that real? So I do think like we are much more savvy in a certain way. I don't know that seven years ago I would have said, is that real? I probably would have been like, where did you see that? Yeah, I think we've gone through these phases in the Murdoch-Trump waltz that we've seen since 2015. It begins with Bill O'Reilly in a kind of lighter version of pumping the gas. And then you get to Sean Hannity, where he's very much in the tank with Trump. They're talking on the phone. He's making up excuses for Trump on air. When Trump's numerous liaisons with other women come into the public purview, Sean Hannity is saying, well, just look at King David. He had 500 consorts, you know, and all these other absurdities to explain away the grotesque immorality of it all. And then we, we wind up with Tucker Carlson, who is an open propagandist. He creates alternative narratives, whether Trump is there or not. And so it suggests to me that Trumpism and the media cohort next to it can last well beyond Rupert Murdoch and well beyond Donald Trump, because there always will be another Tucker Carlson who realizes you don't need Trump or Murdoch to make this work. So I don't want to, I feel like you're making me be the hopeful one here, Tim, and that's not good. (laughs) No No, no one wants that. I'm just, I want you to road test if I'm being too unhopeful. So look, Tucker Carlson, in my mind, was one of the scariest. As someone who has had seen what he's done to people he targeted, he was really, in my mind, one of the sort of scariest of those kind of people out there. Especially because he was really good at it. Yeah, he was really good. Look, I think the thing that we don't talk about enough, and I'm sorry to tell you, I'm going to again be optimistic here. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) But after January 6th, a lot of Trump supporters went to jail. They went to jail for doing what Trump told them to do, right? En masse. Uh, Yes. And so what that did is it had a chilling effect, maybe not on all of them, but certainly on some of them, right? They realized that like you do crime, even for your guy, you go to jail. And that's why we have people going to jail in this country, because the idea is, and again, it doesn't always work, certainly, but accountability causes people to stop doing things. And so I do think it's worth thinking about, you know, Trump has had four indictments, And each time he has not had huge crowds show up at the courtrooms, right? Remember in Georgia, there was a lot of anxiety that closed down the streets, they closed down the this, they closed down the that. And in the end, it was really not a huge crowd. I also think, and again, there was a time, and I say this not from like reporting I've done, but just from my own experiences online as a woman online. There were times during the Trump administration when things were really hot, like you could get really a lot of death threats in a minute. These yeah, guys, believe were, me, I know. Yeah. These guys were, yeah. you were just getting death threats and death threats and death threats. That seems to have cooled down a little bit. And, you know, Tucker Carlson, he was, I mean, the thing about Fox, which I think is important to realize, is that Fox always wins. They're like the house, right? With these reporters, reporters, with their opinion hosts, they always win. So like they fired Bill O'Reilly and Bill O'Reilly went on to have a podcast and not really do anything. And they fired Tucker, who was their biggest 
Rainmaker and Tucker is doing a thing on X, but it's not really, it's sort of of no consequence. And Tucker's gone from like this major voice to shh. So if we were a year ago and Tucker were still on the air, he'd be telling Matt Gates what to do. There was a time last year when Tucker Carlson was telling Republicans in Congress that they needed to start a commission. I can't remember what what it was called, but a commission to investigate the January 6th commission. So he was like giving direct orders to members to of legislators. Congress. Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. So I actually think Tucker Carlson was unique because he was much smarter than most of those people and really uniquely dangerous. On that happy note, we're going to take another break to hear from our sponsor, <laughs> my friend, The Optimist. We'll be coming back and we will be back shortly. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm back with Molly Jong Fast, writer, podcast host, and professional gadfly. So, Molly, we've been talking about the road behind us and the road we've just emerged from in terms of the media colliding with the Murdoch empire and with political haymaking. Rupert stepped out of the game, at least temporarily, or he'll be more behind the scenes. What do you think about going into the 2024 election in terms of the media's relationship to overcoming disinformation and propaganda in the interest of fact-gathering, while also being plain about when people are trying to spin them or lie to them. You know, it's a bill of particulars that are hard for a lot of media organizations to balance. Well, one of the things that I'm the most concerned about is the false equivalencies. And that, I think, really, the road to another Trump presidency is lined with, you know, I listened to a really straight news reported podcast. I'm not going to mention it because I'm going to be really critical now. And these are very smart, really mainstreamy, straight reporters, but they are addicted to the idea. I think I know the podcast. (laughs) Addicted to the idea of of both sides sort of having equal weight. Right. And just that somehow the, uh, you know, 
Trump tried to end democracy. He tried to end it, right? And Biden is three years older than Trump. These two things are not equivalent. And so I do think that is a big problem. I also think Republicans, and not even Republicans, this sort of far-right heritage crew have worked the refs so hard that every time a mainstream media political editor is looking over a piece, he's saying, like, do we seem too liberal? Does this seem to have a liberal bias? And again, that is not how this is supposed to go, right? You need to have a democracy bias, not a political bias. Well, and the healthy question is, do we have it right? Right. And accounting for how biases can shape what you think right or wrong is. I do think there's a good, strong, honorable legacy in mainstream news gathering about assuming you're ignorant, assuming you need to dig a little further to get towards where the truth resides, and that trying to do that on breaking news in an anodyne, programmatic way serves a purpose. I think the problem in the Trump era is that process ran up against a man who's a pathological liar. And who had self-interest ahead of everything else. And the media, I think, had a hard time figuring out how you package what he was about using traditional methods. And I think going into 2024, it's possibly even more pressing than it was in 2016, that the media learned to shed some of its traditions so people can understand the reality around them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I also think This guy is unprecedented, right? You're not covering a normal politician. But that said, I would say, like, the Republican Party's tact to to fascism, right, or tact to an anti-democratic. I mean, right now we have Alabama fighting with the Supreme Court about their refusal to redraw the maps. This Supreme Court, which is a very Trump-heavy 6-3 6-3 court, right? Which believes in federalism and letting the states which have more. Which believes in federalism, which believes in originalism, which isn't even a thing, which believes that, you know, that women can be beaten by their husbands if it's smaller than a thumb. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking hyperbolically here, but I do think that, you know, this Republican Party has really turned on democratic norms. So I think There is a feeling in mainstream media that you cannot be hysterical, that you cannot be emotional, that you must be calm and look at things squarely, which is true. But if Donald Trump gets reelected, we may no longer have elections. So I don't know how you can be calm and look squarely at the end of democracy that way. I mean, I think this tension is between, quote unquote, fact based reporting and accurate reporting. Because not all accurate reporting only involves the fact pattern. It involves interpreting intent. And Trump has long broadcast his intent in a way that isn't simply about fact checking. And the media, I think, has lacked certainly, I think, in 2015 and 2016, early warning systems for portraying that and educating people about it. I think the reality of his presidency put mainstream media back on its feet and There's another bite of the apple coming in. I think a lot of the coverage of the January 6th insurrection showed the media in better form. But in that case, everyone could agree that breaking into the Capitol overtly and being violent on the steps of the Capitol was a bad thing, regardless of the spin that was tried to put around interpreting that event. 
I think Trump still rolls forward with this idea that because he's a presidential candidate, he gets treated with a certain amount of distance and introspection that doesn't actually reflect what he's about and what he's doing. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that they're just the framing. It's so hard to get out of the framing. One of the things that I do think the media has done that's really good is they no longer will say things like, I mean, I was thinking about this weekend where Trump threatened General Milley with execution. Yes, executing and, a former general yes, in the way that czars and pharaohs of the past did it. Not a very normal thing for a healthy democracy. When he said that, I think previous iterations of the mainstream media covering Trump would have had, does Milley deserve to die, you know, as a headline. Now, what I think is interesting <laughs> is there's just sort of been silence, which I actually think is also bad, but in a different way. So remember Trump in 2015, the 2016, the number was that he had about $2 billion in free media from saying crazy stuff and having it reported credulously. So now I think we have another problem, but it's a different problem, which is he's not getting that free media, but people aren't seeing what he's doing. He's not getting the air you know, to float his balloon, but people also aren't being critical of what he's doing and covering the sort of the dimensions of it in a robust enough way. Yeah. So what is the structure that solves this problem in your mind? I have a thought about that. But what is an overarching approach to this that you think would remedy this? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. I mean, I think part of it is just being more aggressive about how things are packaged for viewers and for readers and for listeners. I think you can have very short just the facts, ma'am, kinds of synopses of right. events that give people a general handle on what occurred that doesn't need to take sides. But I don't think that should exist as the only take. I think that's why commentary exists. I think that's why news analysis exists. And I think papers and broadcasters with the ability to do it should be more aggressive about packaging those things together to give their audience a fuller picture of what the world's really about and do it in a highly responsible, but very aggressive way. I think that that's the traditional role of the media. I think the media just has to adapt to the fact that there's more disinformation and propaganda out there that has to be taken on head on and chewed up and exposed for what it is. I think the other thing is that social media companies have to be brought to heel. I think they have to be treated the same way as traditional media organizations. I think they have to police their platforms for garbage and disinformation and hate speech in the same way that traditional publications have done it. I think those are two strong steps towards getting there. But that might be too simplistic on my part. Well, I think the question is, is Section 230 good? Or, you know, should media companies not be responsible for what is published on there? I mean, Section 230 was invented at a time when media platforms were being built right. from scratch. And it was a way to give startups without a lot of money, a way to get content that they didn't have to police so they could get their feet on the ground. Those same platforms, a number of them emerged as major multimedia forces mm -hmm. that I think now should police what's on their pages or their platforms or their airwaves. And I think that Section 230 shouldn't give Facebook or Twitter a free pass towards, again, bringing up this ugly word, but being better gatekeepers. Yeah, no, I agree. When you look at where we are right now, do you see a media organization doing it in a way that you think is right? Is there a media organization that you think has a good playbook? That's a hard question. 
there are a lot of journalists that I really respect writing a lot of really interesting stuff. You know, what is so interesting about the moment we are in is more and more everything becomes decentralized, right? So like there are people I always read at the New York Times, people I always read at Vanity Fair, people I always read at the Atlantic, people I always read at the Washington Post. There are people I love at the New Yorker. So I would say what's pretty interesting is like these sort of brands have in my mind, I don't read something necessarily because of where it is. I read it because of who wrote it. So the personal filter becomes more important. Yeah. I mean, that's not always true. And I'll read all the sort of politics vertical at the Washington Post and the New York Times. or, But I tend to, like, there are opinion writers who I just skip them. I always like to end the pods with asking people about what they've learned, what they know now that they didn't know before, Molly. Does Rupert Murdoch's Descent from the top of Fox and the evolution of Fox over the last decades teach you anything about the way that the media ecosystem in the Murdoch era works? I just think you can never underestimate the way that some people just want to watch the world burn. Wow. So you, see, you are actually the <laughs> pessimist after well, all this back and forth about who's the optimist, who's the pessimist. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, I think part of the Republican political agenda is to defenestrate the federal government. And Donald Trump would just like to burn the House down rather than not being given reentry. So I think that's true. But the extent to which people will sort of enjoy the conflagration is a trippy element of all that. I also think Donald Trump just wants to stay out of jail. I mean... You know, I think that that at the end of the day, the man just thinks like this will keep him out of jail. And we cannot underestimate the kind of motivator that is for him. That's a discussion for the next time you come on to talk with me, Molly, because we're out of time today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. Molly Jong Fast is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and the host of the Fast Politics podcast. You can find her on Twitter at Molly Jong Fast. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that I may be perceived by some as a pessimist, even though I've always thought of myself as an optimist. But given the media swirl that we're in now, I have to say, I feel very pessimistic. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another crash course. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.